You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 352 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Hampton Lintord Catlin is the creator of SAS, Hamel, Wikipedia Mobile, and more. Former VP of Engineering at Rent the Runway, Hampton is co-founder and CEO of VIEW, a live streaming video platform. This episode is dedicated to Daniel Greaves and Andrew Mason, aka my Hamel superfans. Making his second appearance on the podcast, amazingly, Hampton was on episode 51. 300 episodes later, welcome back, Hampton. Thank you. It was, it was only 13 years ago, so, you know... Like, I guess if it was a child, it'd be a teenager. So it's been a minute. <laughs> it has been a minute. And I am excited to recap what your developer origin story is. Yeah. Um, funny enough, I actually learned to program my uh, my parents bought an Apple IIgs back in the 80s. And um, I was too young to actually learn how to program on it. But uh, one, like, it ended up breaking. And one bored summer, I actually grabbed a book off the bookshelf that I, they must have somebody must have sold to them at the Apple well they didn't have Apple stores but it was a book on how to program basic um, and I just read the book and started writing notes in my like in a little notebook and actually programmed on paper without a computer <laughs> that, was, that was actually how I started uh, it, was, it was it hooked me that's uh that's wild I, I can't believe you just sat there and read a book and just got hooked into it that author must have just been incredibly persuasive well I think there was something in my mind you know on the good part like a lot of people when they first learn to program you feel like you're fighting the computer um, like that that's a really common feeling and heck I still feel like it um, and I think I feel like for me it that it was there was no compiler yelling at me and every page I read it was like here's more things you could do. It all felt like superpowers. Like, be like, well, you know, okay, you can store in a variable. Okay, I can do math? Whoa, what What if I want to make a decision? And then I turned the page and describe if statements. And I was like, oh, you can. And like, it was like, it felt like every, and I was like, what if you want to do something more than once? And they're like, loops. And I was just like, it felt like the sort of menu of superpowers are being laid out in front of me in my mind, just in my mind. Um, and I think that was a really positive thing because it wasn't yelling at me. I just kept, th- you know, I'd imagine what the next thing might be. Um, yeah, it hooked me. Yeah, that's a fantastic introduction. So uh, as many of our listeners may or may not know, you are a very established community member within the Ruby community. So I'm curious, what was your introduction to Ruby and Ruby on Rails? Oh, gosh, I, I don't even want to know how long ago that was. Obviously, it was, I think I saw a post on Slashdot when Ru- Rails was had a preview release or something <laughs> which slash i don't even think most developers know what that is anymore but um i remember uh yeah i, I remember kind of checking out and thinking well for me it was ruby you know i had i you know i, I learned to program at basic took some courses in high school i uh you know i'm, I'm a two-time college dropout but in college uh we were learning early java and java especially early i think it's it's improved as a language but it was incredibly mm, difficult to work with, like not just a lot of boilerplate, which I think is the main thing they've definitely not solved, but, you know, just even to do a simple task or, you know, display something on the screen, it would just take like these patterns and, you know, you'd have to like fight with types and the types, 
you know, were not uh, friendly at the time. They've they've improved them. And I just remember when I first saw Ruby, I was like, it, it gave me that feeling of I could do anything. So once I saw that meta programming and all those things, that went back to that sort of original feeling. And yeah, I mean, that must have been, gosh, 15 years ago, 16 years ago. Um, I don't even know how old is Rails. Um, and, but, you know, since then I've done a lot of different things also. I'm, you know, my, my main job is in management, but I remain deeply <laughs> nerdy. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've done a lot of Java. I've done a lot of different things. Um, lots of JavaScript, like a lot of people, but, uh, you know, with this most recent company, I am back to rails. Uh, so, you know, it, it's crazy that this much time has passed and I still, when looking at all the options out there, um, to build a web product that I needed it to be testable, predictable, stable. You know, I, I didn't want to risk anything that I didn't need to when starting a new business. And like Rails just still st still is the thing that is, you want to build a Rails-like platform or like a web app. It's It really just sort of brings everything um, into focus. And I still don't think that anything else out there is nearly as mature um, or as capable. I agree with you. And that's the kind of message that I definitely want to get across on this podcast. So I'm curious, what are your ambitions with Vue? Yeah, you know, Vue, we sort of started as a, you know, live video commerce company. So sort of focusing on, um, you know, a lot of these companies are doing sort of like QVC from home kind of thing. Uh, we've actually sort of, it's turned into more of a, I'm going to say, an art form <laughs> so it's a live video platform so think twitch or something like that um and trying to make it much more than gaming so you know my my ambitions are that people can connect around their interests around the world and feel like they are sharing in something together even though they're remote as the world becomes increasingly um separated and i really you know want to sort of build a positive feeling yeah, glue is the word I've been used to to bring people together about the things that they love. And so that's what I'm trying to do with Vue. Um, it's live video streaming, which is a the Wild West, to be honest. Uh, partly cargo cult. I could talk about that for a long time. But, you know, on the other side of the product, right, video streaming is it's coming into maturation. You know, the business rules around logging in or comments or testing. Like, I wanted to to make those as, you know, the, the risks should be on the things that are different about your business or your technology. So, you know, obviously the Rails app is not handling the video streaming because that's not what it's focused on. That's not one of the powers of Rails. Um, but everything else, all the business logic, all the rules and moderation and all the, you know, all those things you have to build in with any platform, um, you know, that's that's where I think Rails, once again, really shines. So what does the tech stack look like? So it's Rails for the web sort of layer um, using Stimulus, uh, which I sort of, I've been doing like a lot of people react for many years now um, and decided to give Stimulus a try um, and have I can, I can definitely talk more about that. I've really enjoyed it, um, but it, it is, it does have its quirks, I guess I would say. Um, and you know really what we're trying to do is use the power of web apis so there's been and, and this is where stimulus comes in you know one of the strengths is that like react tends to have the opinion that um 
you know, it, it wants to isolate you from the browser as much as possible. Like even when you're writing HTML, you're not writing HTML, you're writing a representation of a different DOM that gets, you know, computed and then diffed and then applied. And like, it's kind of trying to isolate you from, from the browser. And I think it's interesting about stimulus and, you know, specifically DHH's take on this stuff has been, you know, the browser has good stuff in it. And he kind of missed that whole train, which you know, I don't think is necessarily good, but coming out the other side, like, you know, I think these things all come in, in swings almost like of fads that, you know, isolate the browser. No, no, the browser's great. Come back to it. And I think we're definitely on a swing back. Um, and I think I've been discovering just how much you can do in the browser. Like the web APIs are amazing. Audio context and, you know, even CSS these days isn't horrible anymore or still a little bit, but you know, it's, it's much better than uh, it's been in the past. And I think there's just, you know, just even the video of like web, sorry, the power of web components and the video tags. And I mean, I, I just, MDN is just filled with so many um, like presents that the W3C has been working on for years and browser vendors have been working on and they're all pretty stable. And if you, if you want to target the 97% of browsers that support all these things, and you don't care about the 3% as much. Um, there's just so much cool stuff to do there. So honestly, the stack is, you know, Rails with Postgres, pretty straightforward these days. Um, we're using a service called Mux to help with the actual video pipeline itself. Um, and then, yeah, mostly stimulus controllers and a whole lot of cool stuff going on in the browser. That's so awesome. I'm excited to see where you take the company. So while you're very well known for being the creator of SaaS, today we are talking about Haml. So I'd love to hear the origin behind it. Yeah, Haml. Haml's uh, the first thing I, I created. Funny, it it is, I I had just gotten sort of my first job um, in, in tech. I, this small company took a, took a chance on me. I, there for many years, and I, I like to tell people this because, you know, I, where I sit today is not where I started. Um, like, I, you know, it was three or four years till I got my first job in tech. I had to work part-time jobs and do all sorts of other things. Um, and, you know, once this small company kind of honestly just took a chance on on me, um, it was from there that, like, sorry, I was working with a team and we were trying to build semantic HTML. So that was the, the fad at the time was um, do classes for everything name things what they are and I still so <laughs> still think this is true that the wisdom at the time was also you know do not do not use native H, uh, html tags it should everything should be a diverse span with classes and you know I think I mean that's still kind of true today but you know there has been a movement towards more custom elements and things like that um, but with Hamel I felt like I was working with a lot of developers especially back-end developers who would you know, write HTML that was, uh, let's say, poorly thought out, and it wasn't structured well, and it would frustrate me a lot because, you know, I take like, like, why did you send this over to the design team? It's not clear what you were trying to intent, like, like the intent and the the meaning of the data that you were putting uh, for styling. Um, basically, at the time, that's you know, at the time it was like back end people wrote HTML. And then our quote unquote front end developers, this is the early 2000s, were just CSS. That's all they would do, plain CSS and one one big file that was hand edited, um, like the dark ages. Um, and so Hamel, I, you know what I did? I opened up a text editor. 
I pasted in what I thought was a good semantically described HTML document from a real project. And then I just started hitting delete until I had removed everything that was non-essential um, and sort of, you know, ended up doing things like looking at the class and I just said, oh, why don't, why is it class equals quote? Why not make it look like a CSS class so that the connection between the two is really clear? Um, so honestly, I prototyped the language just by an empty text editor. Um, and then from there, I had been teaching myself regular expressions. So the very first Hamel uh, compiler was actually uh, just a big regular expression loop um, that was trying to match. And honestly, today, uh, we, we have certainly made a lot of improvements to the internals, but um, fundamentally, it, you know, it still isn't driven by a traditional uh, parser and tokenizer and that sort of thing. It is actually still sort of driven uh, by um, regular expressions. Um, but that is definitely some of the stuff that uh, that is on the, the docket for improvement. I'm absolutely amazed that you have stuck with the project this long. And as you mentioned, you are currently a CEO. And so you are doing a lot of management type stuff, but you're also still deeply technical. What inspires you to keep working on Hamel? I think the reason primarily is sentimental. Um, the fact that, you know, this was the first project I started and, you know, I abandoned it for at least a decade. Um, I mean, I still use it in my main projects, but, you know, there hasn't really been concerted effort towards it for quite a while. I think it's been kind of stable and, you know, good enough. People like it, use it. I think there have been a ton of spinoff language. It's actually funny. So Hamel's the first language of its type. Um, like there are now in every <laughs> quarter of every technology, a, you know, white space sensitive and or sort of structural focused, you know, markup language that's not HTML that sort of like takes a stance that the brackets, you know, XML is, doesn't matter. Um, and, you know, I just felt like I was looking at the project and coming back to things and started using it. And I realized there were, you know, things that we could do to be a bit more radical to start to actually revive the thing and kind of make it alive again. Um, because, you know, I think it very much, like I said, focuses on semantic HTML with classes. Um, that is, and like minimal, minimalist HTML. And, you know, I think that's good, but I think there's been trends that have been going on that are a little different. So like, for instance, um, the, in my design for the language, we use the percent sign in front of uh, HTML tags. And a lot of people, you know, why a percent sign? That's not common. That already has meaning, first of all. So why would you use a thing that's already got semantic meaning of percentages when it has nothing to do with that? And the actual design reason was uh, I was trying to discourage my coworkers from using tags. So I wanted it to be more difficult to type percent div and not give it a class then type dot name, for instance, as a to, to name an element name. Um, so I actually pick on the US keyboard, it is the furthest you can stretch your fingers between shift and five. It's a it takes one hand and you have to stretch. So I actually was trying to make it physically difficult to do the wrong thing, which in that trend or that period, the wrong thing was considered to use too many raw HTML tags. Um, fast forward to now, I feel a bit guilty that all of you 
people out there use Haml, uh, every time you're doing right and using a section tag or any of the you know video tag, you're having to stretch your finger um, a little further because I was trying to bully my coworkers in the past, um, and so <laughs> like that. I, I just think that there's there's a lot to do to go look at some of those decisions and and start to see you know like honestly at this point i'm into the future i'm willing to question everything like technologies have to change um and we we need to be backwards compatible obviously i'm not going to go break anybody's code i think i've been spooking people with the way i've been talking about it but i also want to you know i want to come back for sentimental reasons and like pump some life into this thing and like make it challenging and i think that's something in the honestly in the rails community that's needed more there's so many projects that are just kind of like good enough and i think that you know it's at the level it, that's a good side of maturity like java is like that across the board almost every library you use hasn't been changed for you know decades um but i i don't think that it has to be like that and i think that we can continue to challenge our assumptions that we made in the past and question them today and then probably be wrong and do it all again but that's tech so that's what that's what we signed up for this episode of the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Recently, I embarrassingly searched for the lyrics of my favorite Nickelback song. I know most of you are probably thinking, why didn't you just use incognito mode? Let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you are using or how many times you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why, even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter if you get your internet from Verizon or Comcast. ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites that you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I don't even realize I have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background and is so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all of your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV, so there's no excuse for you not to be using it. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com ruby, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com ruby. expressvpn.com ruby to learn more. Thank you to ExpressVPN for sponsoring the show. It sure is, and that's a really healthy way to look at it. So what inspired me to bring you onto the show was that my best friend Danielle linked me to the 521 release, which I thought the copy was particularly amazing. So I'll make sure to link that into the show notes. But what is the surprise visit? You know, I came back to the project. There have been um, there have been two or three people who have been really awesome. Uh, Kokubun and Akira, I think his name, um, who have been keeping the thing alive, right? Anytime anything would break they'd fix it or a new version of ruby or some incompatibility they were they were just taking care of it which was amazing um but like there there just hadn't been a release for a year and there was some stuff just sitting on main so uh well also it was called master and so i renamed it to main that was step one um and so i changed it to or we just identified two release and said basically my release notes are hey this is the last stable release where we're not going to change anything um and so i think i called that one the long goodbye um, which spooked everybody, but I was having fun with that one also, um, just because I wanted to kind of make a statement that, hey, look, 
we're pushing out fixes, but we're going to start changing stuff. And then Kukubun, uh lands a PR out of the blue that actually included one of the changes I was planning on making that I thought we would need a whole new parser for, um, which is basically the ability to have multi-line attributes work fluidly. Because um, that's that's actually been a big change. The way I write stimulus controllers now, you know, once again, at the time I was trying to write minimalist, back, back in its original time, trying to write minimalist um, uh, HTML. And there wasn't really a lot of design patterns where you would do a lot of custom attributes. Like obviously Hamel makes that pretty easy with our, our Ruby hash syntax. But, you know, it's not it wasn't really meant for a lot of attributes. Like that wasn't really a, a thing that was on anybody's mind. Um, but today, you know, with the W3C sort of saying the data star attributes are the way we should be including data into our HTML. Um, and then things like stimulus and other libraries too, sort of leaning into data star attributes. Um, my HTML was starting to get really long. A single tag would stretch way past any sort of column limits because I was putting, you know, connecting a controller or a stimulus target, or I'd go put, you know, just regular JavaScript data attributes in for, for whatever reason. And it was getting really ugly. Um, and so what landed in that was, I mean, there was the PR with the code already done and the test written to allow you to basically hit enter on that last curly bracket um, of an attribute. And as long as you line it up with the original tag, you can do as many lines and chop it down. That's, that's what they usually refer to, like, anytime you're nesting and doing a multi-line set of arguments. Uh, so you, you can chop it down and make something much more elegant, much more structural, that sort of shows you how the data attributes should all look. Um, so yeah, with that release, I I was like, well, let's get this PR in. Like, so the surprise visit was uh, my saying that we weren't going to really add much to this existing um, kind of code base. Not code base. That's the wrong way to say it. But that we were going to go start breaking things. Actually, it was only about a month later, and uh, we did another release. So five point two one, much better if you have lots of data attributes and. Uh, luckily, we were able to do it without a lot of backward in incompatibility or really anything much. So um, kudos to the team, which, by the way, I just have to be clear. Um, I'm, I'm coming back as a maintainer and a visionary. I still like have not made any major code changes myself outside of some tests and the way things work. So I've, I've yet to fully get my hands dirty with this um, yet. So it's the work of a lot of other really great people. That's awesome. So I want to move on to a question that I am so curious to hear your take on. I think there are certain words within our community, let's go with time zones, where you get a strong reaction from whoever you're talking to. And interestingly enough, the word Hamel also gets a strong a reaction from developers. They either love to love it or they actually love to hate it. Do you have any idea why Hamel can be so polarizing? <laughs> I, you are you are a bang on that is polarizing. Um I, I like when I go to conferences, just all of the time, like, well, in the before times, uh, when I, people just come up to me and are like, I just want you to know that I hate Hamill. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, thanks. Um, and like, I think people, you know, it's funny. They're not even being mean. I think people are awkward about it or something like in their mind, if they feel guilty for having this opinion, um, anybody out there, if you hate Hamill, that's fine. 
It is, you are allowed to dislike Hamel. That is more than uh, in your rights. It uses a syntax that is not standard. It does not function like anything else. It is like a, a programming language that, you know, doesn't use C style or like Ruby and C and Java. They all use kind of, you know, parentheses for a method call, right? Like that's, everybody knows that's a function, like this sort of class of languages. And there's languages that use other syntax and people tend to dislike those. Um, so I think the fact that Hamel is, um, I would say, a little bizarre in its design. Um, it's nothing like Ruby. Um, and I think that just sets some people off. And then, you know, one of the other things that I've, I've had people change their minds on it, honestly, um, is, okay, so what'll happen, this is one of my theories. People believe that the design of Hamel is simply to be minimalist. That is, that the goal of its design was to have the fewest characters possible. Um, that isn't really correct. I think people who like Hamel, there are some people who like its minimalism, but it's meant to be a minimalism that drives structure and understanding of the markup. Um, or, you know, that's the intent. Um, and one of the ways that I tried to achieve that in the design was by cutting out noise was, you know, the hope. Um, and so I think people think, oh, they're making me do this bizarre language just to save a few keystrokes. Um, and I think that's something that really triggers people when I explain that's not actually the goal. I think some people have gotten a lot better. And then, you know, there's also this effect um, of, which honestly SAS had in the, the beginning. You walk into a project, it's a legacy project. Somebody else put in a Hamel file. There's like one part of it that's written in Hamel, the rest of it isn't. You've never used Hamel. You pop open that file to make one change and you have no idea why you're having to learn this bizarro language like that it feels like an imposition on people and so i think a lot of people when they first start a job or start working on a thing they'll go oh, oh my gosh why why is this file in hamel um and it's it's partly because it was imposed i think if they had been introduced to it a different way or felt like you know started with a clean sheet that'd be easier um but then even you know just as many people who've been in that exact situation of starting a job where they're using hamel and they're like what um have you know told me oh i hated it at first and then i started using it and then i started understanding why it was helping me um think through because that's you know that's honestly what is trying to do it's helping you think through the structure um and yeah so i think that's why it's pulled i think it's an odd syntax i think people don't like to feel forced to learn something especially when it's not super mainstream um but yeah i mean i i'm so I'll be honest, I'm surprised with how little we've done to it, how much it's remained um, popular and in so many projects. And, you know, once again, that's one of the reasons why I want to also fix it up, because I think everybody deserves, you know, so something nice. Well, it's incredibly well documented. It's stable. And then one thing that I've always relied on is say I need a template. Obviously, I'm not going to go out on the internet. I'm just going to find a Hamel template. That's typically not what happens. You know, I find an HTML template, but there's so many fantastic converters out there that, yeah, they're not going to be 100% accurate. And sometimes I have to clean up the Hamel after I pull it out of the converter or whatnot. But like for the most part, they work pretty well for me. 
And so I just love that moment where you take just like this big glob of HTML, run it through a converter, and it just looks so much cleaner. And I've always wondered if there's a correlation between people who love Hamel and people who are inbox zero, like who just like really like <laughs> a tidy and clean thing. So um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of resources out there. Yeah, no, I'm, 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 I like when my inbox is zero. It doesn't spend most of its time at zero. <laughs> uh, no, I, I absolutely think like sort of tidy, clear, focused. Like that's definitely what what the the concept is and the, the real push that it's trying to get you to do with your HTML. Can we go out on a limb and say Marie Kondo probably would support Hamel? I absolutely, and I I do fold my clothes Marie Kondo style. So you, yeah, I think you've. I feel I feel seen right now. <laughs> so um how can listeners support you and hamill yeah i mean look we are definitely looking for people to volunteer on the project um especially if you have a interest in parsers um that is the real next thing we need to do is go build a full tokenizer and parser um and you know i have a lot of ideas on what we need to do um i mean i I can't believe I haven't mentioned her this whole time, by the way, but I want to be really clear. The majority of the code and that documentation you talked about was written by Natalie Weizenbaum, who remains the lead developer of, of SAS to this day. And she is the creative, amazing genius behind so many amazing parts of this whole thing. And so just massive credit to her that, like, you know, I wrote the first couple parsers and, you know, uh, I, I'm just not the type of person whose brain writes a parser well. I think it's a different... I, I'm much more a Rails developer. I want to go make things happen for people, right? And, like, I love building these tools for d developers because they're people, and I want to make life better for people. Um, I think people who are into parsers, it's very much a like a Sudoku sort of thing. It's like a kind of perfect mathematical understanding of how things work and you know so i'm really looking for like honestly people to come really join the project because i think there's a lot of really cool stuff we can build um there's a lot of like new syntaxes i think we can support that uh and sorry optimizations we can make to the language itself um and to, so i mean like github.com hamel slash hamel <laughs> uh or reach out to me on twitter um at hampton makes um I'm, I'm pretty easy to Google with my name. Um, but like you, you out there literally having these conversations, pe people think there's like magic to how open source works. It's literally just people out there are like, oh, maybe I'll try a Saturday. I'll, I'll try a branch and see if I can write a, a parser for this. And then that ends up being, you know, <laughs> fast forward, you're Natalie and you work at Google working on SAS full time. Like, <laughs> like these things get a life of their own really quickly so uh, there's there's no magic it's just work and effort and time and talking and dreaming and hoping this episode of the 5x5 ruby on rails podcast is brought to you by scout apm scout apm is application performance monitoring designed to help rails developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat with the developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, Scout helps you quickly pinpoint and resolve performance concerns, like N plus one queries, slow database queries, and memory bloat, so you can spend less time debugging and more time building a great product. 
And with Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails, you can rest easier knowing that Scout's on watch to help you resolve performance issues before your customers ever see them. Give Scout a try today with a free 14-day trial and experience firsthand why Rails developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. And as an added bonus for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash rubyonrails. Thank you to Scout APM for supporting the show. I love it. So what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and Ruby on Rails communities? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I mean, I do, do you have an hour? Um, <laughs> I, it's, it's a real tough it's, it's an interesting period right now i think right now is going to be a real uh, shift period for ruby and rails like ruby and python used to be equal in popularity and ruby has definitely been falling in popularity over the years um i think for a whole set of reasons um obviously you know javascript the last 10 years javascript went from a terrifyingly badly designed language to it's very, I mean, it's entirely different the way I write JavaScript now. And I think a lot of people, like, entirely different. Like, I can't even recognize that it's the same language. Which, honestly, I'm writing TypeScript, which is kind of a different language. Um, and I just think, like, there hasn't been enough critical thinking and questioning going on um, in the Ruby on Rails community to push things into a different direction. And I think, you know, David being the, like, obviously strongly opinioned leader um, of, of the community uh, building his business at Basecamp. Um, they've definitely taken some contrary views to what's been popular. And I think that has hurt the community, but let me be specific on that hurt in its popularity, but maybe not long-term, right? So like, like we're just going to have to see all this shakes out to be honest. Like, how the future of the web works. And if it looks like what David's been thinking of, then I think Rails is going to shoot back up in popularity, uh, especially with the stimulus stuff. It's really interesting. I think it's a really interesting thought to write hyper-minimalist JavaScript. Um, and he's been talking a lot about uh, Snowpacker. Um, I've also been looking into that a lot. Like, I just want to write ES6 for the browser. Like, I don't know why I need to go cross-compile anymore when the vast majority of browsers support HTTP2, like vast majority. Um, and yeah, I just, it's, there, this is a time where we need change though. That's what I believe. Like if we don't continue to push things forward and really question assumptions that were made even 15 years ago, um, we, we're going to remain a good choice, but slowly die out. And I think that, you know, I, I am here because I want to, um, help make that not happen because I think there's too much good and there's too much opportunity and there's too much I mean the, the stability is a blessing and a curse right like it's great that there's three gyms or like <laughs> like, I don't know, like image processing gyms are great now they just work um, but you know we don't have things happening like AI and VR and there aren't like some of the newest stuff going on isn't really happening in this tech stack. And I think we need to change that to start pushing on new crazy things again. Like, you know, when I think about how re the, when I first came into the Ruby community, it was all, it was all rebels. You know, everybody felt like they were fighting against the big Java PHP machine and artists. And that was sort of 
who the community was. And I think it's turned into startups and big companies that use Rails. And that's not a bad thing. That's what happens, you know, in a community. But I think you kind of have to swing back, though. <laughs> like, if you don't swing back into a little bit more experimental thinking and experimental risk-taking, I think, you know, you it eventually goes from, you know, mainstream to legacy. Um, and now I... I am investing my time and money literally to getting back to this because I don't think that's going to happen, or at least I'm going to do everything I can to bring the weird back because um, I think that is just so critical. And last note on the future, Ruby, I'm not happy with the type story in Ruby. Um, I Types the way they were done in the past were a headache, but... I really do think languages like TypeScript have really cracked the formula. And I think my code is better, actively better when I write TypeScript because I have to think about the APIs that I'm building and what I'm writing. And I really, really want that in my Ruby. I don't like that when I go to my Ruby code, I feel unsupported by my IDE. Um, like, I think we really need to solve the fact that like, I get squiggly lines under half my method calls in Ruby because it can't figure out what's supposed to be happening. And when I type TypeScript, I can control click on any word and immediately jump to its documentation and definition and everything it takes. And then I can go read the APIs right there immediately. And like that is something that every major language now has. Um, Python has fixed a lot of that in there. Uh, their language and like we need to fix that in Ruby. We can't be the one language or one of the few languages that um, is non-deterministic and therefore impossible to know <laughs> what your code is doing um, and be able to do static analysis that's more powerful. I mean, there's so many advantages to that. I just think I really hope that somewhere between Sorbet and some of these other projects and and obviously, what is it, RBS files? Is that it? Or, oh, I can't remember. Whatever. The Ruby 3 has some typings, but in a different file. It's like repeating the, if people are familiar with C, it's like the .h file, which I just think is a throwback, and I, I, I don't really understand the logic. Um, so that was a very long answer, but um, I have lots of thoughts. <laughs> wow. Uh, thank you so much for sharing all of that, Hampton. That, I'm definitely going to have to mull over everything you just said. I think you have some really good insights there. And it's really the perfect way to wrap up the show. Thank you so much for coming back to the show 13 years later and for all the contributions you've made to our community. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.